Hello, this is Voices of Esalen, and I'm your host, Sam Stern. Today, our guest is Caroline Harvey, an internationally renowned spoken word artist who is a frequent contributor to the Esalen Institute. Uh, Caroline and I joked around about what is the name of her actual profession. Is it spoken word? Is it performance poet? She came up with stand-up poet, which I really liked. Uh, Caroline is also a professor at the Berklee College of Music, where she teaches, among other things, traditional poetic form, yoga for musicians, and professional development for artists. Caroline was nominated for 2013 Best Poets Award, as well as for the 2012 Pushcart Prize. I noted in our far-ranging conversation that equality and identity were among her chief concerns, while gender, privilege, evolution, love, rebellion serve as some of her choicest subject matter. In her own words, Caroline's work is an exploration of the sacred and the profane. So now, let's check out our exploration of the poetry and philosophy of Caroline Harvey. to start off by asking you, what, how do you refer to yourself as the, the thing that you do? <laughs> what a great question. Uh, seemingly simple question, not always easy to answer. Uh, I think what makes the most sense uh, when I speak about my work is activist, educator, and artist. Mm-hmm. That seems to cover just about all of the work that I put my heart into. Yeah. Uh, do people refer to you as a spoken word artist? Is there is that how your is that what your job is? I, mean, <laughs> I know that you, you, that you teach also, and you're an activist also. But the art part of it um, hmm. is it called spoken word? Spoken word is, I think, the best term for it. So there's the competition of slam poetry, which is a term a lot of people have heard. It's in a, a huge bloom and happening nationally and internationally. And poetry slams are the competitive art of spoken word. There's a term performance poetry, which I also really love, uh, and spoken word. And I tend to think they all really mean the same thing. They're just different words for different rooms. Mm. And performance poetry maybe uh, helps us understand that the body and like the gestural body is part of the performance, that it's both the poem that's been crafted and there's choreography or an embodied presence. And spoken word maybe puts a little more emphasis on the sculpting of the voice, right? So we have like Gil Scott Heron, right? You know, the revolution will not be televised and that's spoken word, right? You hear it mostly on an album. So you're investing, you know, you're investing in the sonic quality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with YouTube and HBO and button poetry and slam poetry happening everywhere, performance poetry feels like a better term because we're starting to see the body be really um, integral to the work. What was it about um, performance poetry that made you choose that as opposed to just poetry, like as opposed to just writing? I remember being 11 or 12 with my junior high school best friend and we're dreaming about, I don't know, moving to Europe or whatever we were fantasizing about and talking about careers. And I said, I'd always been a writer. It was my first form of expression from a young age. And I remember saying to her, I want to be a stand-up poet. Because I knew what stand-up comedy was, but I knew that I really could never make a career being funny. But I, 
So it was always in the back of my mind. And um, <laughs> I stayed friends with, with this woman for a long time. And maybe just after college, I went to visit her in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And we drove past this bar and she said, hang on, I'll be right back. And she runs in and then she comes back to the car and she says, there's a poetry slam starting in 10 minutes and I signed you up. <laughs> I said, what? Um, and then I realized there was this whole uh, international movement of slam poetry. Um, of course, it draws deeply on ancient practices of oral storytelling, mm. but I didn't know there was a contemporary place to do it. So while I love writing, I'm also really passionate about dance and movement and the way we hold stories and memories in the body. So for me to be a writer and not include the body, it it just wouldn't be a thing I could stick to, mm, I guess. Okay. Well, we'll get more into your activism and your, and your teaching too, but I sure. was wondering if you would share with us, um, kind of across the breadth of this interview, some of your stand-up poetry. Absolutely, and thanks for using that term. Yeah. <laughs> Although it does make people think I'm going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, this piece I'm really proud of, and uh, it's a recent recent piece um, from 2016, and uh, it came in response to a, an interaction I had with a student, and then I, I brought the piece to the student to make sure that they were okay with me sharing it publicly, and, and they were and are, so it feels important to say that. And, uh, the piece is called Shade. Student leaves and the classroom hums with empty. Student comes back, hurls overstuffed backpack on the floor and says, so I've been throwing shade at you since week one because you said some shit about how the only reason we could decline participation in the juggling game is if we had something wrong with our legs and couldn't stand up. And that shit was dismissive. And so I've been on the fence about you because I do have something wrong with my leg. And I know it's not a big deal, and I think you're probably good people, so I figured I should let you know why I'm not really sure if I like you and why I throw you so much shade. And I say, thank you for the check, and I will work to do better. And you're right to feel dismissed, and you're right to tell me, because what I said was not at all okay. And it's not your job to educate me in this moment, but... Is there anything I can do or say to more fully acknowledge my mistake? And I feel like such a professor, such a white lady, such a well-meaning liberal asshole, and I hope to fuck that I am saying the right things and not smiling too much about how extraordinary it is that this student just checked me on some shit I most definitely should not have said. How grateful I am for the days when people actually tell me the truth. And the student says, no, nah, it's cool. We're good. But now that I called you out on your shit, you can call me out on mine and let me know if you see me throwing too much shade. And then they hurl their backpack back up onto their shoulders and leave. And then the classroom is empty again. And I want to tell somebody about this great moment. But I'm certain that nobody needs to write another poem about how great it is that white, able-bodied, liberal folks finally live in a world in which we can be safely called out on our prejudices. Pretty positive I don't need to pat myself on the back for learning how to not be ableist. Pretty sure I don't deserve an award for not being racist. Don't deserve a trophy for encouraging my students to speak truthfully, to be human, to love themselves enough to speak up even if it's scary, 
even if the person that needs calling out has control over their grade, their scholarship, their job recommendation. Totally certain a teacher not encouraging oppression should not be surprising or novel enough to be worthy of anyone's applause. But I couldn't help myself, so I wrote the poem anyway, and I don't really know how I feel about that. Lovely. Thank you. Deeply (laughs) self-deprecating. Well, and aware, right? I mean, that's part of... um, I, you know, I do have this able body and this voice and this um, privilege and access to spaces like this mm-hmm. and to stages and to classrooms. And how do I hold that privilege and that role of leadership from a place of strength and confidence, but also, yeah, I'm going to mess it up, right? And I'm going to be, f- I'm going to be infiltrated by the context of the world and the bad training I got from patriarchy. Uh, And if I can't be in conversation with my students, then like, what am I doing being a leader at all? I had this amazing teacher, Judith, Judith Chafee at Boston University, which was where I finished my undergrad after five colleges, uh, (laughs) where I finally finished my undergrad. And I, um, She was an incredible and wise teacher, and it was the first time I really saw someone model a career and a life that I thought I would want. And she, uh, she's in a different field, but she, when I was her student, she was both teaching and really invested in her own life as an artist and a performer. And that made sense to me. Like, oh, I really need to be able to do both. So I knew I wanted to teach at an arts college. yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm learning every year. I don't. I feel like I get better at certain things, and then it's different every year. And the world is changing every minute, so yeah. the classrooms have to change. They yeah. have to keep up. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of read us a poem about a mistake that you made. Hmm. Um, how many years ago did you? Did you oh, that was last fall. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's and it's it's a it's in my teaching foundation. I mean, we spend uh, here at Esalen and when I'm teaching in Boston, wherever I am, we spend the first you know, week of class a really significant amount of time talking about a contract for safer space and making room to be free of prejudice and free of harassment. How would you feel about sharing another piece? Great. I would feel great about that. Um, so I want to go into, this is a somewhat new piece and um, I was telling you this a bit before we started the interview but it seems important to just mention that this piece came out of a conversation I had with a colleague who's um, white and gay and a writer and also an activist in the way that he lives boldly and we were having a conversation about um, essentially about perceptions of sex and promiscuity and what the word slut means and, you know, kind of who has control over the body and stigmas really all around this. And we kind of came to this beautiful place of acknowledging together that, you know, when when there's consent, affirmative consent and, and willingness and and empowered safety, right, if all of that stuff is in place, then what we choose to do with our body can can really be revolutionary um, for us and 
if we start to talk about the body without shame, we get to really have an impact. Um, so uh, I just felt like it, it was important for me to mention that conversation that led up to this poem, uh, which is called Why My Sex is an Act of Protest. Why my sex is an act of protest. Because all bodies deserve to be touched. Because all skin is holy, all mouths beloved. Because those of us that have been beaten more often than we have been protected may not ever recover our faith. Because my faith is a pool of gasoline, beautiful but toxic to hold. Because my vagina does not make me keeper, does not mean I am nest for the wayward, for the parentless. Because your penis does not make you weapon, does not make you auger nor spear. Because sex is a weapon only when held in the wrong hand. Because I am allowed to hate my own breasts. Because I am allowed to imagine them shaved off, my chest flat and sinewed. Because I am allowed to feel born into the wrong skin. Because I am allowed to tell my lovers that some days I am living in the wrong skin. Because the wrong skin is still holy skin the hated breasts, still holy breasts. Because we must love in each other what we cannot love in ourselves. Because we must love ourselves even when the world has taught us to not love. Because what we have been taught is wrong. Because my rapist was wrong. The shame choir is wrong. Because those that would have you believe your body is a thing that can be governed, legislated, are wrong. Because I am more than one thing, more than my body. Because my love is not finite and cannot be emptied. Because my sex is a prayer and when I fuck, I am perfect and sinless. I am resisting every wretched voice that shrieks of my unworthiness. Because my sex is mine to share and give away and take back as I please. Because when we carry each other, naked singing heart, pressing open into naked singing heart, we are the revolution. We are the defiance. We are the refusal to condition and systematize our love. We are the dissenters howling back. We are the orgasmic denial of norm, of standard, of tradition, of patriarchy, of oppression, of the body as payment, of sex as obligation, of gender as a gospel we are forbidden to burn. We are the dissidents shouting loyal and tender into the ears of the forgotten, the shunned, the isolated, and the undone, because my sex is a liberation movement, and my body is the rally cry and I will not silence the chant that trembles me, will not enslave my body to self-loathing, because I will not abandon your body to doubt, because when we love each other naked and safe, you can hear freedom screaming in the slap song of our thighs and in the hum whistle arch of my back. You can hear it. You are not alone. You are not alone. It gets louder and louder and louder. We are not alone. Oh, very powerful. Thank you. Um, mm. Talk to me a little bit about the, the process that went into uh, writing that. Well, that conversation um, with my friend Sean uh, was, you know, it was just sort of a random, like, we're out at some weird diner, you know? And I think what I value about... Um, 
loving being a writer is that it reminds me to be really observant and pay attention. Mm. So we all, I mean, we all have those moments where it's just like, oh man, what a cool moment. Like, whoa. And, and I, and that conversation just stuck with me. I was like, whoa, you know, I just never really thought about, like, I just never thought about it that way. I never thought about like sex really as an act of protest, right? Like Mm. me or anyone having sex with whoever they want, however they want and with as many people as they want in a radical open way is actually being um, yeah, like a really intense piece of public activism. We're just taught to, to keep, keep that stuff quiet. Mm. Um, so that conversation stuck with me. And then a lot of my work, I guess, uh, or, or often my work starts from a place of deep searching inside to be sort of cliche there, but um, if I get stuck in my life and I don't feel like I know where to go or what to do and I'm feeling stagnant, there's a a flag in there that's like, oh, all right, pause and look, Mm -hmm. something is going on. And so I work... um, I work to pay attention and, and to have compassionate conversations with myself, even when I'm really irritating myself. <laughs> like, I don't want to be pissed off today. I have things to do. Or, mm-hmm. oh, man, like, here's sadness. Or why is this voice of self-loathing just going around and around in my mind? Um, but, of course, none of that stops until I really turn and look at it and pay attention. And... um. I have questions and fears and thoughts all over the spectrum from from pride to shame about my body, my sexuality. How do I define, you know, I use the word queer, which I I love. It feels honest. It feels like a reclaiming of that word. Um, But it also is kind of a broad word. And my experience of sexuality is that it's fluid and shifting. And of gender as well? Um, and, well, what I'm really excited about uh, as a, a conversation that's happening now internationally is this idea of gender as a performance. So, um, right, so there's assigned sex at birth, which is usually based on what you have going on between your legs. Um, and then there is the presentation of gender, which has been categorized on a binary spectrum, right? male or female. And what we're starting to understand is that the presentation of gender has nothing to do with, uh, often has nothing to do with the biological or assigned sex. Um, And that what we call male or female is a bit, um, it's it's just an uninformed small view of how gender can present. Mm. So I'm female-bodied, uh, and female identified, but the social construction of femininity that we see in magazines, um, like the idea of dresses and cleavage and flowers and pink, right? Which is great, just isn't, it's not at all comfortable for me. It's like nauseating. Yeah. Um, so I shop. Like I buy men's clothing, right? And I, because the men's clothing section is just more what I like. So it doesn't mean necessarily that I, I feel like a man. It's just 
I'm not interested in these really intense categorized binaries of gender. But because that's what exists primarily in the world, it does result um, for me and I think for many folks in a in like a hatred of my own body, right? Like if I didn't present feminine, if I didn't have breasts, um, you know, if I had a different body structure and looked more manly, would it be easier for me? Because it's challenging, right? Women are marginalized. Sexism is a thing. So... Yeah, that was that's a brave section for me in that poem um, to talk about, like actually imagining my own body in a different way, and that that's only some days. I like yeah. some days I'm really excited and to have this body or this part of a, my body, and other days it feels tough to exist in this skin in a society that says male or female, which is just like a joke. So yeah, this piece was like, oh, I had that spark conversation with my friend and then it 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 cracked open all of this new deep searching I got to do. If there was a like a pie chart of uh, <laughs> your the subjects of your poems. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's pretend there was. What would it look like? Like um activism, what percentage of the of the pie is that? Well, Oh, I'm such a writer, right? I, like, no questions, get simple answers. But I think activism is in every part of my poetry, right? Mm. Identifying as a queer person is activism, right? Identifying as um, gender fluid or gender questioning, there's, those are activist things because they're not accepted disclosures. So slam poetry, performance poetry in general, uh, is characterized by a content that speaks about taboo or shunned subjects. So we we have an opportunity in slam poetry, performance poetry, to talk about race and politics and bodies and sexuality and sex. And right, so that that kind of means everything is activism. But in terms of of content, I'm primarily an autobiographical writer. Um, so I'm talking about you know the the things I've covered so far, right? Bodies and sex and gender. Uh, I write a lot about sexual assault, awareness and prevention. Um, I write about white privilege and anti-racism work. Um, and I have a small but growing body of work that I'm excited about in which I'm doing persona work. So that's a right, that's like a, an actor's term where like um, you know, take on the voice of someone else. Yeah. And do you sound actually different when you do it? Well, I'm working on it. Um, there's, I don't know if you know uh, anything about the history of tiger taming, but Mabel Stark was the first female tiger tamer. And she's just a total badass, radical person. Um, and her story's a bit sad. Um, she did eventually um, choose to take her own life and suicide in the mid-60s. But before that, she was this just this radical woman, like essentially taming tigers um, and so many injuries just and just never quit. like just never gave up and pushed beyond so many obstacles and um, adversities. And at one point, her favorite tiger, Raja, actually slept in bed with her, wow. right? Like she was radical. So I'm um, working on a poem from her voice and there's very little footage of her talking, uh-huh. but she did like, know if she did like like some old game show like Hollywood Squares or like celebrity 
I don't even know. It's like a black and white clip. I can't remember what the game show was, but she's on it in her old age. And um, so I'm trying to work on some of her mannerisms and voice. That sounds fascinating. I I, I like that. I I had a question for you about how you can kind of avoid the cadence of the, like the spoken word slam poetry person, Mm -hmm. because there's, it can often be like the stereotype, like, Salt shaker, you shook my salt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I noticed it's that you been don't... mocked recently on I Parks and Rec. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. I was really hoping the end of your sentence wasn't going to be. And I noticed you do that, and it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to give you some tips on, on spoken word. Yeah. So um, I very much appreciate that compliment. Here's the short answer to that: uh, Don't lie. Right. If you're a spoken word artist and you're in a rhythm that isn't naturally coming for you, you're lying. You're not actually connected intellectually or emotionally to the words you're saying. Mm. You're you've fallen into a rhythm that's carrying you rather than accessing deep feeling and truth and letting that move the rhythm. Have you ever heard the expression uh Oh, I think it's like, um, like, is the suit wearing the man or is the man wearing the suit? Okay, yeah. Right? So there's some great spoken word artists that, like, set the tone for what this movement and art form would be. And it's only natural that in starting out we would do some probably unintentional mimicking. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one reason why that happens but then there's also things that I that I don't have expertise in where um, while slam poetry isn't considered within the hip-hop world, right? It's not under that umbrella, but it does borrow a lot from hip-hop and borrows a lot from MCs and rappers who are working with meter and rhythm in a different way. And that can be amazing. Um, and I have colleagues that are doing that and it's just totally incredible what they're able to do. But... If it feels fake and forced, it probably is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hope that doesn't shut down any new writers. Right. Because I definitely did it. <laughs> I definitely did. So I thought that's what it had to sound like. Yeah. And then I worked with a coach, um, another performance poet and a dear friend, Shane Koizan, and he helped coach me to get me ready for making my first slam team. And he just said, close your eyes, feel what you're talking about. Okay, now say it. Mm-hmm. And then everything shifted. I think about Malcolm Gladwell's idea of mm. 10,000 hours. Love that. Have you put in your 10? Oh, well, I'm not a natural at math, so maybe we'll have to, like, you know, pause the interview so I can get my calculator out. But um, <laughs> I, I love that concept. I'm so glad you said that. Uh-huh. And while I, I haven't done the math and now I really want to, I do think a lot of this stuff is just. Like, keep showing up. Yeah. Right? You just keep showing up. Yeah. Let's, let's do another one. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a sip of water while I decide what I want to share with you. This piece was um, important and difficult for me to write. And for those of you interested in some of the craft behind writing, um, I think a lot about verb tense and about the narrator, right? So who's speaking and who are they speaking to? And in the poem, when is the action happening? Is it happening right now or did it already happen or is it going to happen? 
and this poem um, is in first person, which means it's it's me talking and it feels like a diary entry on purpose, right? It's a really, the, the structure of it is meant to be like an internal glimpse into the story that's happening. Um, it's kind of like you're reading my mind, but I don't know you're reading my mind is a little bit what this point of view does. And it's also in present tense, which is the most urgent and right now tense. Um, and I, I chose that because I'm talking about complicated um complicated conversations around sex and sexual assault. And um, it's a topic, you know, like I was saying, it, it's a, it's another one of those topics that we're like not really supposed to talk about or we're supposed to talk about in private. And none of us really know totally how to deal with, mm-hmm. how to deal with it. Um, but it's out there and it's happening. And I um, felt like it was important to write a poem that was happening right now in the moment. And... It's nice to be able to share some of the craft underneath the poem, like while we have time to crack this stuff open. Yeah. So this piece is called Deciphering the Quiet No. I have surely thrown my lonely into uglier nights than this one. I have fed my mouth to mouths more spoiled than his. I've beaten the monsters away before, haven't I? with fists and rings and howls and sly boots, switchblades, but he is not so easily marked. He is tall and handsome, smart and schooled, teeth twinkling martinis. He dances with me, sings big band into my sad, sad shoulder. My friends, our friends, urge us along. So I say yes. I say, okay, yes. And in the taxi cab, the wide turn slides me into him and he kisses me and I say, okay. I say, come up to my hotel room. So we're in my hotel room, but his teeth in the light are now just teeth. I think, maybe I do not like the way he smells in this room. I think, maybe I do not like how he looks at me when the lights are on. I think, oh, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just ugly or small. So I beg myself to feel beautiful, sad, dancing girl in the bar again. Martini mouth and jazz and yes again. We talk and then we lie together. He kisses me open-mouthed. I don't say anything. He pushes a hand into my waist, moves the fabric of my shirt up. I don't say anything. He finds a breast. I don't know why I start crying. He doesn't notice. I don't show him. I feel sorry. So I kiss him back, a congregation of voices twitching on my tongue until finally I say, um, I don't, can you, can we just wait? Now I understand that when lovers have loved each other long enough to speak without speaking, consent can become a willing negotiation. And sometimes we are allowed to press, to push without pushing. But he and I, We are not lovers like that. He presses like machinery, like I am something to be forged. He presses and tells me how good his hands work. His big band voice saying, it's okay to say yes, you know, say yes, he tells me. Say okay, say okay. And I can imagine that if he and I did love each other, I might be glad for his persistence. Grateful for a patient lover. 
So I pretend for the smallest of wholly lonely moments that we do love each other. And I tell myself, wouldn't it be nice to just say yes? And then he presses into me, but my body does not know how to be a machine. And suddenly I am a choir of split tongues, a yearn with too many names to name out loud. And he touches the skin of my tin belly, cups the coin of my breast. His right hand finds my zipper and he pulls, pulls, pulls. Those tiny, reluctant metal teeth clinking open like teeth. And he turns his wide hand around to slide a finger past the edge of my underwear. And I think, maybe I do not like this man's hand so close to my holy. And then I say, no. It is a quiet, irresolute no. A forgettable, mediocre no. It does not buck like a blade or punch like a strong thing. It is a small no. He does not stop the machinery until I say it five more times. No. 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 And when he lets go of my thigh, I roll over. He touches my back. Fine, I think. Fine. It's only my back. In the morning, he leaves nothing behind, smiles and slips out. I sleep in, pack up my clothes and shoes, drink black tea with no milk. I did not tell our friends what happened. I don't know how to name our collision. In the train bathroom on the way home, I watch my face warp in the scratched mirror. I feel so small. It's okay, I tell myself, it's okay. You have had to fight off bigger monsters than this, haven't you? I mean, this one wasn't really so bad. You didn't even have to scream. Maybe it doesn't even count. <sighs> hmm. Thanks for giving me the space to read that one. It feels so important and so scary. Mm. And I'm just so tired of... You know, I work with so many young people and I'm just so tired of this happening again and again, where it's like people not having full control over their own bodies. Mm. Um, and it's not always a gender thing, but, but I also talk to so many young men who, who never had these conversations with their parents, who are trained to be macho and pushy, um, you know, it, it, it's just, for lack of a better word, it's just a clusterfuck all around. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I want to share something that happened with last night. Um, so I did a performance here um, in the new and beautiful Huxley at Esalen, and I shared that poem last night as well. And I, I spoke a little after and, and made a plea um, to people who are parents to talk to their kids. Uh, and this man came up to me afterwards who I didn't know. He's here at Esalen for a workshop and um, just stood in front of me, very grounded, very respectful of our space and boundaries and looked me in the eye and he said, I want you to know that my workshop ends on Friday and I'm going home and I have two sons. Mm. And as soon as I get home, I'm talking to them about this. Um, I think they're, he said that they're just about to be teenagers and 
you know, I just burst into tears and I was like, okay, <laughs> that, you know, that's, that's why it's, it's worth doing this work to just start these conversations. Yeah. The, well, the, yeah. One thing I appreciated about that poem is there's a subtlety and um, a discussion, like you said, of the, the gray areas yeah. that go around. Um, really these conversations, right? Which we don't have a better word than assault. Um, but it is these these practices of awareness, right? That there can be, a consent is a thing that can be revoked at any time. But also we have to practice deep awareness so that we can all be in the subtleties of those moments, yeah. right? Because things are yes until they're no, right? And then they're no, and then they're yes again, or then they're maybe, or then or then it's, can we talk about it? <laughs> right, it's, it's, these are these subtle conversations. Um, and... Not that it doesn't happen, but but we're not talking about like the stereotypical like law and order SVU stuff, right? Like we're not looking at masked men in an alley, um, you know, and that does happen and it's horrific and, and needs to be part of the conversation. But what I'm mostly interested in working with young people is around these subtle places. You know, I was thinking as you were reading that it must mm. be... Um Challenging on one hand and invigorating, you know, at the same mm-hmm. time to be so vulnerable in um, in a public place, speaking about something. And I was just wondering if you could speak about the the enactment of vulnerability mm. that must come along with being a, a performance poet. I love that question. Thank you for that. Um, I, I think I've always had a, um, I just, I, I see that theme showing up for me a lot and like it showed up in a really different way in my graduate school work where I um, was really interested in the time and still, but but at the time it was like a big focus, these ideas of, of silent meditative dance and movement, I guess like the ecstatic dance movement. Um, and so I was, I would, uh, I did this project where I would, um, ask if I could come to people's home and engage in a meditative movement practice that was improvisational and just about me, but also have it be a performance where I was watched while doing it to figure out like, and if you've ever done an ecstatic dance, like, you know, or any meditation, there's this moment of like deep vulnerability and dropping in and really internal quiet work. And then can we stay there while also holding the consciousness that we're being watched? Right, that it's a performance. And so I spent all this time kind of practicing, you know, am I actually connected to my intuition right now or am I performing what it looks like to be intuitive? Yes. Right? And I, I worked to train myself to hold both of those realities at the same time, um, you know, which is it's challenging and ongoing work, but it, it is really about, um, one of my teachers, Vin Marty, says, um, we're, we're alone together, right? So it's like we are we are alone creatures with a whole internal world that is vulnerable and happening. And we're in community. So I don't want it, like I'm just, I guess, I'm just not interested in binaries in general, right? I don't want it to be like, oh, we're performing and connected to community or we're vulnerable and tender. You know, I want all of that to happen. Yeah. And um, so that's a part of it, is that I'm really interested in that, way of being and then um 
so so one of the things I hold really dear as an activist is is the the truth that it's not up to the victim to educate the predator, right? So it's not actually up to the rape victim to teach people how to not rape. Right? It's not up to African Americans to teach white folks how to not be racist. Now, they, we and they might make that choice, right? I can make a choice to disclose my assault and be an activist. And I think that's important. But also, we need allies, right? We need people who can come to these conversations more objectively and, and start training each other. Right? Like, I don't want to lead a men's group and teach men how to not assault women, but I want the good men in my life to go do that, mm-hmm. right? Like this father, I want him to go do it. Um, so, so while I do think it's, I mean, it's really, for me, it's really my only option. Like, I'm, I'm not interested in sitting silent with my wounding, because I don't, that doesn't get me anywhere. Um, but I also don't want to make um, like thoughtless or, or careless disclosures. So when I do share these poems, you know, here with you or um, on stage, I often start with just a moment of, hey, here's where we're going, right? Like, here's the body I'm in. I'm going to identify myself for you, um, which I think is a radical act, right? To just announce, like, I'm white. Uh, you know, I'm assigned female, I live as a female, I'm queer, I'm Jewish, right? The more we announce our identity, the less it becomes that the only people who have to announce their identity are the marginalized, right? Like white is invisible, but then you'd say like, you know, not you, but, oh, her black girlfriend. It's like, well, if we're going to say that, then I'm going to say that I'm white, right? We're just, gonna, you know, so I, I work to normalize that. And then I offer a little bit of a warning slash welcome, like, hey, I'm going to go into these topics and I have a voice and I choose to use it and I feel safe. Um, and and uh, option A, right, I like to say if option, option A is not available, so let's kick the shit out of option B, right? So option A is I never was assaulted in my life. That option is not available, right? Radical acceptance for that, which doesn't mean it's okay. So what's option B? And option B for me is I'm going to kick the shit out of being an activist and getting other people to talk about it and working to not let it happen to me or anyone else again. So you said empowerment and vulnerability. And I think you're, you nailed it. Those are, that's the right wording for it. Are there any parts of your life that you feel are not, not up for sharing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, like are there things I keep private? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. She says, <laughs> while giving you the side eye. Why, um, I guess what, you don't have to tell me what they mm. are, but what characterizes <laughs> those things? What are your like, secrets? Tell me them all right now. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, wh- why this to me seems like something that is so many people don't speak about. Yeah. You know, but you've decided that not only will you speak about it, but in some ways it's your mission to speak about it. Mm-hmm. So the things that you won't speak about, are they too trivial? So a story just came to mind, which I think is my answer. I had um, a great student years ago. She's gone on to be lead singer of this like amazing punk band. And she's just like totally outrageous, right? She's like a healthier version of Courtney Love and just like radical, awesome chick. Um, and she was really passionate, like a lot of artists are. She was like a young person and really had a lot to say, a lot to say, a lot to say. And she was in the, you know, I say this with, some adoration, but when she was my first my student, she was just like speaking so much. She was cutting other people off, 
people were getting irritated and she didn't notice and she was so excited. So for her, I created what I now teach widely and I call it the urgency rating. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, okay, here's what you got to do in your mind before you speak. First decide on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you have to, how urgent is it for you to speak about the thing you want to say? And then on a scale of one to 10, how urgent is it that we all hear it? <laughs> and if you, don't, if you average that and it doesn't look like it's closer to 10, then you be quiet. Mm. So, you know, I think it's like selfish and kind of gross, I think. Um, and I'm an opinionated asshole a lot of the time, so you're welcome. But I think it's like, I don't want to hear stories that I don't need to hear. I'm, I guess they, there's a space for them and they can be out there. But if I'm engaging in a live performance and like the speaker has a lot of people's attention, I'm interested in work that's transformative and big. Um, and I'm, I guess what's also true is I'm really grateful for the other kinds of artists out there who have more of a passion for entertaining because I can't do that. Like I, I just, I don't write funny. I don't write easy. Mm. But I'm so excited that I have colleagues that do mm. because we're all needed you know, and, and I like, I have a particular kind of work. It's not going to be right for every room. Right. Um, so I guess that's, that's my personal practice is if there are things that are really urgent for me to talk about, I can write about them. I can share them with the people closest to me. Um, but how urgent is it for the room to hear it? Mm. And I guess what I'm learning too, and this is like a, a sweet little place of growth for me, is that it is important for me to write and talk about how beautiful my life is. And um, as a part of destigmatizing sexual assault and recovery, right? There's a stigma that like rape survivors, you know, are just going to be fucked up forever, um, you know, or, or have intimacy issues forever. Or, you know, it's a tough thing. I'm, you know, my young women who like are out as assault survivors, like have a hard time dating because you know, we, we don't have a good understanding about it. So I am, I am learning that um, while there are things that are not urgent for me to talk about, like I write a lot about my nieces. Mm -hmm. I have two young nieces that I adore. And every once in a while I'll share publicly poems about them, but really they're like, for me, because I just love them so much and I don't want to forget any of the things that happened. Yeah. Um, you know, but I have a couple of sweet love poems and friendship poems that... I am learning are important for me to share just to round out the conversation and not always be such a, like I'm softening my rigidity without losing my integrity. That's cool. Like that. <laughs> just taking some time. All right. I have um, just some speed round questions for All right. you and then we'll do um, one last poem. That sounds great. Okay. so Speed if, round. All right. <laughs> I notice you have a Grateful Dead pin on your backpack. <laughs> Are you a deadhead? Um, I am a totally a deadhead. Uh, I dropped out of high school when I was 15 to follow the Grateful Dead around. This is aging me now, so okay, yeah, hopefully there's nobody out there it. doing math. There's a series um, of questions. Yeah, it, uh, I am a huge deadhead. Um, that experience, while it definitely pissed off my parents um, at the time, was incredible. It was... You know, I followed them around for a long time and went to a lot of shows. And who's your favorite member of the band? Oh, well, you know, I'm sure they're all listening. Um, but I did have the opportunity to um, 
to jam and share some poems with Billy Kreutzmann, who's the one of the drummers. Wow. Um, yeah, I got a residency on the island of Kauai, uh, where he lives, and got to go to a jam with him and, and do a poem. So he's pretty rad and amazing, but, you know, you can't beat Bobby and his little shorts. No, you can't beat, yeah. What um would you what would you job would you do if I took um teacher off the table, activist off the table and and um performance poet off the table? Um what job would you do? Motherhood. What's your favorite spot uh, at Esalen to hang out in? There's some secret spots. Mhm. Um so I'm a big fan of it must have a name, but the little bench that's kind of past the farm and in the corner. Mm-hmm. Is that that almost qualifies as a secret for? It's a little secret. For some of our listeners, it does. Just go all the way down to the end. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find us there hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a rope swing that I'm not telling you where it is. Oh, which is one of my favorite spots. Um, and the personal tub that is if you're looking at the ocean the one that's all the way to the right the white clawfoot personal ones that um it's just been a spot of so many epiphanies and openings and connections for me and it's big enough for two people so my friends have climbed in and you know long days of sisterhood just bathing and um celebrating Esalen so that's a good spot What's your secret superpower? What's something that you're really good at that people actually don't know about? Well, I've been told my secret superpower is um, making people weep in relief and joy. (laughs) This year for my um, work scholar students, I put together uh, like a little pencil pack of supplies as they're, you know, they got their course guide and they got this little zippered pack that had some cool pens in it and a little notebook um, and a pack of tissues. <laughs> it's like, I've been told that, you know, people cry, um, but hopefully not out of anger <laughs> or fear. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Where do you want to be in 50 years from now? I want a modest and simple but epic house with windows and I see like curtains that blow really breezy and I'm covered in tattoos, right? Because by that time, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have filled up my skin. Um, I imagine like big community and family around me. I have plans for motherhood and adoption and... Um, so I imagine that, and uh, yeah, I guess I often imagine that here in Big Sur, even though I have I have a, a strong base on the East Coast. Um, this is where I imagine getting old. <laughs> Let's do one more poem. Yeah, well, this is kind of a nice follow up to that because it's about land, and this piece was first performed at the World Parks World Parks Congress in Sydney, Australia, in 2014. Uh, I was invited to share a couple of poems there um, as part of their 10-day process of um, engaging representatives from 160 countries to talk about how we protect and save 
uh, our land, our sacred land. So this poem is called Litany of Invisible Things. One, I live on the 14th floor of a building made of glass and steel and artifice. When I walk to work, my boots bite back the cement sidewalk. I dodge the glare of construction workers, the pulse of jackhammers, the blue and yellow awnings of business, some full of customers, some doors as closed as a cemetery. For those who can afford it, the U.S. city is a vessel squeezed by convenience. Food delivered hot to an apartment door, 24-hour Target superstores, my choice of hospitals, and a constant rotation of shops and restaurants. I may never see the land that grows my food. I don't know where my drinking water comes from. My cat lives inside, and together we track the one hungry hawk circling the organized trees in the park outside our window. The bed where I sleep is 400 miles from the farm where I grew up, where the horses needed tending, the thirsty and unruly gardens. It is months between visits to the grass, to the sea. It is years since I have walked barefoot in the canyon, since I rode my mother's horses in the woods. Sometimes when I sleep, I dream of the smell of evergreens, the saddle and the bit, the feel of smooth leather reins in my grip. I dream of the brown earth flung up from hooves, the horse galloping, her heaving lungs, her black mane, and I wake up so lonely for the place that grew me. Two, there's no life for me on the farm anymore, and so it goes. The years pass and we choose our work and we settle into the rhythm of a good life. And I'm happy most days in the city, content to dream of the woods from my plastic palace on the 14th floor. But there's little there to remind me of the land. The metal faucet does not speak of the rivers. The new building of condominiums does not name the forest that shed its timber. When I make my purchase at the pharmacy, I'm not shown the plants and shrubs that blended to heal me. The origin, the medicine, the jungle, soundless and unseen. Three, none among us could eat, drink, heal, work, or grow without our sacred lands and seas. Yet still, it has become truth that for some, for me, to care about the earth is a choice. But what about my neighbors in New Orleans, in Darfur? What of the retreated glaciers, the melting Arctic, the fires in Big Sur, the Great Barrier Reef, the flooded Pacific Islands? What about the communities that are choiceless? Because my floor is not collapsing, because my food arrives hot and clean at my door, because the disintegration of the earth is veiled by my pretty city lights and glamour, does that mean I can turn a blind eye to the work of stewardship? To have a choice in the act of caring about the earth is a privilege, and to choose to turn away is a denial of the most basic and poetic genetics of humankind. Four, of what is the body made? We can hide in our 14th floor safe houses, but our atoms know their origin and the body cannot forsake its genesis. The DNA we carry remembers the sea from which we were emerged and were formed. The skeleton feels the soil swirling in its synapse. My body is made from the earth, and so my body becomes a litany of invisible things. 
My soma is a holy list of the places my molecules have been but can no longer see. The names of lands whose imperceptible particles piece together my ancestry and my form. Here, in my hip, wood buffalo. Denali in my collarbone. A speck of the skeletal coast on my tongue. Okapi in my hands. Glen Canyon for throat. Lake Torrens in my ribs. My legs made from water tin. My arms from Yellowstone. Jasper in the asymmetrical iris of my left eye. Manu and Serengeti in my tendon, Laguna San Rafael in the arch of my foot, Boma in my fingers, Limpopo pulsing electric in my blood and the woods of my parents' house in upstate New York, embedded in my hair that shakes like a black mane. My anatomy is an atlas and a recitation. Five, consider the moon that vanishes once a day. The phantasmal stars dead before their light reaches you. The dreams you have, but will not remember. What unseeable gift sustains you? You're being asked now to make of your marrow a monument, to record the unnoticed and believe in the invisible, but you can see it, can't you? You can see the river even though it hides behind the metal and pipe of your sink. You can see the tree even though the city workers call it foundation and frame. And you can see the ocean, can't you? You see it every day when it leaks from your eyes onto your cheek. You are made of this world, sand, salt, wind, and remnant. We are made of each other, this holy harvest, this manifest terra residing here in bones and breath, inhale. Good. Now you're made of this moment, too. Savor it before it's gone. Caroline Harvey, thank you so much for sharing with us today. You are so welcome. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music today was produced by Esalen's own Sierra Snyder, who records under the moniker of C-Seer. This beautiful track is called There Will Be Music Despite Everything. Subscribe to us on iTunes at Voices of Esalen and never miss an episode. Or... Visit us on the web at esalen.org. All of our podcasts are archived there. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and be well.